Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. I want to thank you for being here today. Many of us are in vacation, and I'm glad that you know, we're here to receive God's Word, and for those of you who are uh, in the provinces and are streaming online, I pray that, or I hope that uh, you would take any form of destruction so that you can listen to God's Word with uh, attentiveness of heart and mind. Now, we'll be in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 today, uh, because it's Christmas Day and we want to talk about you know, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we skipped verses 8 to 13, but that's the first order of business as we uh, gather together on the first Sunday of, of January. So today we will look on the great mystery of godliness. Uh, that godliness is a mystery, uh, so to speak. Because many people attempted to live godly lives. And they tried everything, religion, uh, they tried uh, yoga, probably. All sorts of beliefs have been tried, if only they, they can live godliness. But to be honest, if we are to examine uh, rather objectively the lives of people, um, many who are striving for godliness actually end up with um, living in sin. Many of these people who claim to be godly are still, you know, enjoying so much of their sins from lust to materialism uh, to uh, pride in their hearts, all sorts of sin. And it's probably because of the irony that I find in the world, because the world's idea of godliness, it's clear that the root word of godliness is God, and yet many who claim to live in godliness doesn't have God at the center. Doesn't have God at the center. John Piper is insightful when he said that righteousness, kung nagpupumilit daw po tayong mamuhay ng matuwid, for righteousness' sake, John Piper said it is atheism. The false teachers who were teaching in Ephesus at the time of Paul, they were relying more of their good works. They were relying more of their law-keeping or observance of some form of rituals. But Paul said, these things doesn't have the power to change lives. And that's why in our passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 16, somehow Paul outlined to us that if we are to behave properly, if we are to behave properly in the household of God, we need to understand the great mystery of godliness. We need to understand the great mystery of godliness, namely Christ. Namely Christ. So how can we live true godliness? Here's my big idea this morning. 
Here's our main message this morning. Knowing Christ in the redemptive work of God would lead the church to live in true godliness, which is the proper way to live in the presence of God and as the upholder and protector of the truth. What we're saying is because we are living in the presence of God as a church and the Lord somehow entrusted to us the truth, then there is a certain way that the church should live. But the only way the church can live in that way, which is godliness, is knowing Christ. It's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to endeavor to answer this question. Why should everyone, take note, everyone in the church know how to behave in the household of God? Why can't we just come to church and, and be part of a community although we live in sin? Why can't we just gather together and organize the church in a worldly way? Why, why do we have to go with the scripture and structure the church in the way God wants us to structure the church? And the way God wants us to live our lives. Why should everyone know how to behave in the household of God? I want to draw three things from uh, this passage. We want to look at the church for our children this morning. Remember these three words, church, Christ, and calling. Church, Christ, and calling. When you get home, ask your parents, ask them, what does pastor mean when he emphasized the word church? What does he mean today when he emphasized the word Christ? And thirdly, calling. I hope that the parents will be able to answer their children when you get home. So as a church, now we need to behave in the household of God, because the church is the house of God and the upholder and the protector of the truth. Such a lofty calling. Such a lofty calling for the church. We are living in the presence of God and we uphold and protect. We uphold and protect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought that certain place Certain place requires certain behavior. I always remind my children that there are certain things that they can do in the living room, but they cannot do in the dining table. Right? Certain place requires certain behavior. Because of the nature of the household of God, sambahayan po ito ng Panginoon, it requires everyone to know how they should behave. This is one of those that Paul sought to make sure here in this letter that all of us would know how to behave in the household of God. Listen to what Paul said in verses 14 to 15. Paul said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, so apparently Paul was not in the church and he was writing this letter to Timothy, and he said here that in any case, I wanted to come to you, but in any case, I will be delayed. Paul said, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a and buttress of the truth. Now, obviously, Paul did not just randomly give a description of the church here. He said that the household of God, he said that the household of God is the church of the living God and the pillar and the buttress of truth. Because he was giving reason why, he was giving reason why one ought to behave rightly. So we will be looking at these two descriptions that Paul gave the church so that we will understand how important it is that you and I will behave rightly in the church of God. The first thing that Paul said is that the household of God is the church of the living God. Now, the household of God speaks of possession. In other words, it is God's household. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 in your scripture, we will understand that the household of God can be understood like we are talking about our household. I can say that um, our household, composed of Malu, John, and Bray, I can say that it's my household. It speaks of possession. So Paul said, the church of the living God, it speaks of possession, uh, sorry, the household of God, it already speaks of possession. He cannot mean, when he said the church of the living God, he cannot mean possession again, because that would be redundant. What then did Paul mean when he said the church of the living God? What Paul meant in this description is that the household of God, the church, is the house where God dwells. This is the house where God dwells. Think of it this way. An OFW can say that a certain family is his household. But, for the most part, he actually does not live there since he is working abroad. When Paul said that the church is the household of God is the church of the living God, what he meant by that is that the church is not just owned by God. God lived in the church, lived in our midst, lived in every one of us. This is the household of God. Now, we are not just saying to mean that God is omniscient, om, om, omnipresent, that God is everywhere. No, God is with us relationally. God is with us in a way that is palpable. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that when an unbelieving is with us, he would leave saying that God is really among you. To the church that Timothy was pastoring, the church in Ephesus, Paul said, after telling them that they are members of God's household, in Ephesians 2.22, this is what Paul said. In him, in Christ, you, are, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The indwelling presence of God should make us behave in a certain way. My dad used to work in summer. Um, he would leave the house on Sunday evening and board a ship towards uh, Ormok. 
And then he would come home on Friday evening, traveling back to Cebu, and he will be in the house around 5 a.m. in the morning or 6 a.m. And I could still remember today the difference between how we live on the weekdays and how we live on the weekend. My dad is uh, a disciplinarian, and my mom is not really, it does not spoil, she does not spoil us, but she would love us so much that he, she could not keep herself but give what we want. Let's just put it that way. Whether we like weekends or not, what I know is that the presence of the owner of the house, my dad, changes everything. The, the presence of God um, in our midst should invoke a certain behavior from us, a certain respect, because we are in the presence of God. And if you look at Scripture, respect and reverence before God means we worship Him, Hebrews chapter 12, with our sins being confessed to the Lord. Our God is a consuming fire. We cannot worship Him, but at the same time living in sin. For sure, we cannot casually sin as we know that the God who dwells with us is holy. And sometimes it makes us wonder if we really understand the truth that God dwells with us. In the words of Lolo Ser, um, he just died. In the words of Lolo Ser, uh, to their helpmates in the house, wag kang kasual. Right? Sometimes we're too casual. And I can almost hear God saying, wag kang kasual. He is a holy God. He is way beyond, He is way higher than you can think. Secondly, Paul described the household of God as pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the church's responsibility to the truth. Truth. Basically, what Paul is saying is the church exalts and protects the truth. By the way, the truth that we're talking about here is basically the gospel, which we read in verse 16. So we exalt and protect the gospel together as a church. Pillars. We all know, we are all familiar with pillars because our houses surely have pillars. Now, pillars do not only hold the roof of our house, but they actually hold the roof high. It's not just holding the truth, it's holding the truth high. Philip Ryken is insightful on this. He said, a long read, but I think a worthy reading. The architectural function of the pillars is well known. They hold up the roof. So, to say that the church is the pillar of the truth is to say that it lifts up the truth for all the world to see. 
He actually follows the thought of John Stott, who said, here's John Stott's words. The purpose of the pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen from a distance. Just so, the church holds the truth high aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. So that's one calling um, as a church. We hold the church high. Sorry. We hold the truth high. We want to exalt the gospel. We want to display the gospel. We want the world to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't put the lamp under the table. We put it above the table. We are a city on a hill. Everyone should see the gospel in and through us. Now what comes next? The buttress of the truth, which is emphasizing on the on protecting the truth, makes sense. If the church exalts the truth, she better make it sure that she exalting she is exalting nothing but the truth. In other words, if we are to exalt the gospel, we have to make sure that it is the true gospel. Have you seen a buttress? If it is foundational to the, or sorry, it is not foundational to the building, but it is usually the side structure that supports the building. Have you noticed the, um, the Roman Catholic churches? And there are, you know, structures on the side that I thought when I was young, I thought they put it here so that when we play hide and seek, there's a place to hide. Now that's not for hide and seek. That's actually what we call as buttress in, in new, um, buildings today. We cannot see much of it, but on the old ones, you will see that there are, you know, pillars on the side, like a pillar looking on the side, they are actually buttress. Um, I think in Tagalog, estribo, tama ba? Mas lalong hindi naintindihan. Um, when I search, it just says alalay. <laughs> it supports the building. Now listen carefully. The church does not, or the truth does not need the church for it to be true. The truth does not need the church for it to be true, and the truth does not change. Even if people will say a blue is red, it does not change that the blue is blue. Today we are in a truth war. And the world is good in making things appear to be the truth. But whatever they do, those are deceptions. It will never change the truth. Let's be clear on that. So the church supports or keeps the truth from being changed by the world in the mind of people. This is the work of the church. The church keeps the truth from being changed by the world in the mind of, in the mind of people. This is our work. We don't just allow people to preach another gospel. That's why in the context, Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, do not let anyone teach any different doctrine. 
Because that's our work. Jude, in Jude chapter 3, said, contend for the gospel. Fight for the gospel. Yes, Paul commanded Timothy in this letter not only to keep anyone from teaching another teaching, but also to teach the truth. And think about social media. For a time, I was adamant to use social media. I felt like, oh, that's so worldly. But then I realized the people in social media is spreading what they believe. There's a truth war. And we Christians cannot just allow the world to change the mind of the people on what is the truth. That's why instead of just, you know, well, it's good that we post, that we eat here, and we're there, and we're going somewhere, and when we want people to like, there's a better way to use social media. There's a war on the truth. And we need to preach the gospel there. We need to share the gospel there because we cannot just let the world to change the mind of the people on what the gospel is. So in this way, the church will keep anyone from twisting the truth. Again, Jude 3. However, <clears throat> Paul's emphasis on mentioning that the church is the buttress of truth is for everyone to behave properly on the truth. Oh, sorry, on the household of God. He said, behave well because you are the buttress, you're the pillar and the buttress of truth. In other words, like the presence of God, the truth that the church upholds and protects demands a certain kind of living from the church. If you may the church should embody the truth. We are cruciform life church. And we name the church as such, not so that we will have a fancy name. No other church used the word cruciform as a name of their church. No, it best represents us. We believe that the center of the scripture is the cross of Calvary, and we also believe that the people who believe in the gospel should live a cross-shaped life. Should live a cross-shaped life. We should embody the truth. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 19, Paul expected Timothy to wage a good war, a good warfare against false teaching. In chapter 2, verse 2, the church should be in peace and harmony, godly and respected by the community. In chapter 2, verse 8, men in the church should lead with pure devotion and dependence on God. In chapter 2, verse 9 to 15, women should embrace their calling as, one, as the ones who complement instead of overpowering the men. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, the men who are leading the church should be qualified men. In chapter 4, Paul said, pursue godliness. In chapter 5, everyone in the church should have the right relationship with each other. And in chapter 6, Paul said that the church should live in contentment. 
the church should live rightly. And in Paul's words in Titus, Titus 2 chapter, Titus 2.10, so that we may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. See, everyone in the church should know how to behave in the household of God because of the presence of God and the truth that it upholds and protects. It was found out so many times that those who join rallies or campaigns, have you heard that in the news? Do not really know why they're there. You know, they, they were just there. Maybe they were just asked to ride the bus and they get there. It explains why many of them do not act in accordance with, with what they are fighting. The church should not be like this. We cannot not know why we exist and act like we do not know what we are doing. If we know that God is dwelling in our midst and we are representatives of Christ, we have to keep our lives, our ways, and our relationships. It is for this reason why there are those of us who, have, who would have wanted the preaching to have a direct relevance to their lives. And really, we also want that, that you know, we will just give you what you think, what is relevant to your life. But we continue to study the book of Timothy so that the church will be structured in the way God wants it to be structured, that we might best represent the gospel to the world. It is for this reason that we do not hesitate to call out any of us to turn from sin because God is with us. And church, let us know very well that it is not about us, but the presence of God and the truth that we represent and protect. Secondly, why should everyone have to know how to behave in the household of God? It is because of the great mystery of godliness that the church holds, namely Christ. So our second thing that we will look at here is Christ, the mystery of godliness the church holds. The mystery of godliness that the church holds is Christ. So, so far we have been pounding on living a certain way because of the truth and because of the presence of God. But what we might have been asking in our mind is, what is the truth that we are holding? Why are we making a fast out of it? Why, what is so big deal about this truth? Why does it require us to live in a certain way? Now, verse 16 is Paul's way to declare that Christ is the one who is great and not Artemis, the God of Ephesians. All scholars believe that Paul, when he was still in Ephesus, um, heard the cry of the Ephesians in Acts 19.28 when through the preaching of Paul, many stopped you know, buying um, this structure, this 
statue of their goddess Artemis, and they feared that they will lose business. And they steered up this man named Demetrius. He steered up the crowd against Paul. And then the crowd were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Acts 19.28. And many scholars believe that when Paul wrote verse 16, and he used the word great, the voices of the people of Ephesus were still ringing in the ears of Paul. And Paul wanted to combat that and say, No, great is Christ, not Artemis. That's why here Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. Now let's look into that. The mystery of godliness. In verse 9 of chapter 3, you'll find that Paul also mentioned the mystery of the faith. So when Paul said mystery of godliness, he's actually referring to the mystery of what we believe. The mystery of what we believe. In a straightforward manner, Paul dealt with the beliefs of the Ephesians pertaining to who God is. Like, like all people, the Ephesians had their own idea of God, isn't it? Even today, if you ask people who is God, they would have their own idea of God. And Paul is somehow is saying here that what has been kept, the mystery is a secret. What has been kept is now revealed. Because of the sinfulness of man, we do not have the ability to know who God is. And it explains the fact why there are billions of religions out there. Because man was created to worship, but he does not know who God is. He will come up with all sorts of idea or ideas of God. But Paul is saying here, that mystery has now been revealed. You don't have to second guess who God is. It is now clearly presented to you. And, and, and who is God? It is not an idea. It is a person. It is a person. He was introducing Jesus Christ here, who displayed who God is. As John MacArthur said in his sermon on this passage, that godliness here is like God-likeness. In other words, who is God? And Paul said, if you want to know God, he is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Actually, the older manuscript have the word who instead of he. And there were even manuscripts who uses the word God. Now, it could be that from the start, it's really who. Later on, some Christians change it to God because it refers to God. God manifested in the flesh. And the newer manuscripts were written by the church people who thought of making it more clear that it refers to Jesus, so they put the word he. Whether who, God, or he, the whole redemptive work na sinabi po dito ni Paul sa creed clearly points to Jesus. So God did not reveal himself through ideas, but God revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly in his redemptive work or his work of salvation. 
There are several offers on how to look at this creed. This is actually a church creed, verse 16. Some said that it is outlined through pairs or couplets like flesh and spirit, angels and nations, then world and glory. Some said it has to be looked as two parts of the redemptive work. The first three lines to Jesus when he was here until he resurrected to heaven. And the last three lines refers to the work of Christ through the church until he will be crowned with glory. One thing for sure, this talks about the redemption. It's talk about God's plan on how to save mankind. So let's read verse 16. 1 Timothy 3.16, it reads, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The first thing to note, if we are to know God, is to acknowledge that God the Son the second person of the Trinity became man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He manifested in the flesh. This refers to the incarnation of the Word or the eternal Word, who is God Himself, who became flesh, John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. And God had to be like us, according to Scripture, because he was to save us. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote it this way. Hebrews 2.17 He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, body and soul. Christ has a body and Christ has a soul when he was here. Because he has to be like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the only way for him to pay for our sins is for him to be like us. Therefore, Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, he said, When the fullness of time had come, in God's perfect timing, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Crazy, because this is the God who gave the law, but when he became man, he will be under his own law, because that is the only way he can redeem us who are under the law. The incarnation amazes us in a lot of ways. God in human flesh is already mind-blowing. However, it involves more. God had to make sure that the baby Jesus would not inherit the sin of his parents, particularly Mary, because he was born through a virgin birth. And we are just told by the scripture in Luke chapter 135 that the Holy Spirit has to overshadow him, to protect him. So that, the ch- so that the child will be holy. And most importantly, the mu- humiliation of God, as Paul said, 
that though God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ did not consider himself as one, but took on humanity and obeyed the Father to the point of death on the cross. And it is the reason why the book of Hebrews also said that he has to learn obedience and perfect it. Well, the Son has always been obeying the Father, but it's another thing to have the flesh. It's another thing to be so hungry, and yet you refuse to turn that stones into bread because you know it is not the will of the Father. Though you are dying of hunger. Just looking at the incarnation already tells us that the Old Testament is right when it says that God is able to do what he is pleased to do. Psalm 115 verse 3. And you know what? What pleases God to do? What pleases God to do is to become human so that he might save sinners. That's what pleases God to do. However, in becoming a man, he was not acknowledged by many as God. In fact, you remember that when he claimed to be God, he was charged with blasphemy. And when he refused, when asked finally by the high priest, who are you? Are you the Christ? Jesus could not deny it. And he said, you have said so. And the reason why they, they crucified Jesus on the cross, it was not because of any criminal things that he did. It was because of his claim that he is God. In other words, the people did not accept that Jesus, who was like them, who played with them when they were young, who was known as the son of Mary and Joseph, a son of a carpenter, a person who did not go to school, they could not accept that Jesus is God. Yes, well, he was surely like any of us, like any of us. I think when Jesus, if Jesus is walking on the soil that we are walking right now, you would not identify him as the son of God because he basically looks like you. He was like any human being. But the Holy Spirit proved that he is God. The creed that Paul quoted then said, vindicated by the Spirit. He was God manifested in the flesh. But people would say, no, you cannot be God. You are just a human being. But the Holy Spirit vindicated the claim of Jesus that he is God. <clears throat> yes, he was human in the flesh. But in the spirit, he was more than human. He was actually God in the flesh. And when the Holy Spirit brought Jesus back to life, when the Holy Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead, then Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, here's what Paul said. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The resurrection leaves no question that Jesus is God. And it is for this reason, or it is this reason that the first century world was rocked through the preaching. Do you know what they're preaching at the time? And their preaching was centered on the resurrection. They were arguing that Jesus is really the Messiah. Jesus is really the Savior of the world because he resurrected from the dead. And we realize somehow everything about Christianity hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Hangs on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ did not resurrect, then don't believe. But because Christ resurrected from the dead, then there is no reason not to believe because that resurrection proved his claim that he is God in the flesh and came to save sinners. Now the resurrection can still be, you know, can still be welcomed with a lot of questions. Did he really resurrect from the dead? That's now the question. Did he really resurrect from the dead? Up until today, those who refuse to believe in Jesus continues to do things that will discredit the resurrection. So how credible is the resurrection? The creed then said that the resurrection of Christ is seen or was seen by angels. It was seen by angels. Like any facts of history, if you are a fan of a geographic channel, you always ask for a proof. And the God of history knew that the people would always ask for a truth, or sorry, for witnesses. And here he said he was seen by angels. The resurrected Lord was seen by angels. Actually, it was attested by both by heavenly beings and earthly beings. Angels here have been debated. Does it mean angels in heaven? Because if it's angels in heaven, it's right. Because the first ones who witnessed the resurrection of Christ were angels. They were the ones who, remember, the ones who told the women who were going to the tomb to check on the body of Jesus. It was angels who said, no, he, he rose from the dead. Or, does it refer to earthly messengers? Because in scripture, messengers are also called angels. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul, in talking about the prophets of the Old Testament, whom God used to prophesy of the coming of Messiah, he called them angels or messengers. Well, the ambiguity or yung pwede yung dalawa is the beauty here. That the resurrection of Christ was witnessed by the angels, 1 Peter 1.12, means that the truth that Jesus is God who became human to save the people of God is a truth that is not only acknowledged here on earth, it is the truth that acknowledged in heaven. In other words, the gospel that is being preached on earth is the gospel that is known in heaven. That there is no two gospel for one on earth and one in heaven. There's just one gospel in all of history. 
The heavens acknowledge it, and the earth, by those who believe, acknowledged it. But that the resurrection of Christ as well was witnessed by the apostles, the angels, also witnessed were credible messengers. That made them credible messengers because if it was just a second-hand story, we will ask, did you really know? Did you really see that? But the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They saw the risen Christ. They saw the risen Lord. So both in heaven and earth, the resurrection of Christ is proclaimed. He manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And he was seen by angels. He was witnessed by messengers. From here, the power of God is displayed by how the gospel of Christ reached the nations and believed by many. The creed goes on to say, proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. In the time of Jesus and the apostles, um, one of their gauge to say that their faith is true, is that it will outlast the life of the leader. And that's why in, in the book of Acts, we, we saw them saying, you don't have to worry because if it is not of God, it will just die. But if it is of God, you'll be kicking against the goads. So in their belief at the time, a truth will outlast people. It will continue. And the test of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah is when he went back to heaven, will it continue? Will it still be believed by people? And here we're saying, we're told it was proclaimed among the nations. Remember when Jesus Resurrected, even when he resurrected from the dead already, the apostles were too afraid to go out and proclaim Christ. However, when the Holy Spirit came in the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they were emboldened and began to preach the gospel. And through the Holy Spirit still, up until today, the believers who followed the apostles proclaimed the resurrection-proved gospel that the apostles thought we are not preaching another gospel. We are preaching the gospel that the eyewitnesses were preaching. That the apostles were preaching, the apostles were teaching. And today, while there are still many unreached nations, the gospel has clearly advanced in lips and bounds. As foolish as it might be, sound to many that a man has resurrected from the dead. The shocking thing is that the message of the gospel is believed in the world. As the creed says, believed in on the world. Many has attempted to shut down the work to keep people from believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. History shows that every generation, there was an attempt to stop the shred of the gospel. Bibles were burned. 
evangelists were killed. All of this were attempting to stop the spread of the gospel so that many, so that people will not believe it. Yet the Holy Spirit is at work. The proclamation has continually brought people from the world into the fold. You and I, we are living 2,000 years after the resurrection. But here we are joining the apostles in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is right that he himself will build the church and even the gates of heaven could not prevail against it. And it is the sole reason why the gospel has penetrated even the hardest of people in the world. You can see the most hostile people in places like Gaza. But then you realize that there are churches in Gaza. The most hostile people to the gospel would be in Syria. They beheaded a lot of Christians in this place. And yes, there were Christians to be beheaded in the place. There are Christians in Syria. There are Christians in China. There are Christians in India. There are Christians in Guatemala. There are Christians in Iraq. There are Christians in Afghanistan and the rest of the countries. The truth is the gospel has penetrated all the countries already. And it will not stop until all the tribes in every country will be penetrated by the gospel. It supports the truth of the gospel. It will not stop until Jesus will taken up will be taken up in glory. Some would say taken up in glory this means Jesus ascension, but the way the creed is outlined it cannot mean the ascension of Christ, the first ascension. It only means the second coming of Jesus where his glory will be in full display. And when every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In this six-line creed, this is a six-line creed, one verse in our passage, we have before us what the early church believed on the redemptive work of God, which is, it will not stop until it is completely fulfilled. Just as the work of Christ was fulfilled when he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there was nothing made apart from the Word. Just as Christ finished the work of creation, the work of redemption, he will also finish. Just as Christ fulfilled the first three lines when he was here, he manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit and he was seen by the angels. We can also be assured that the, the proclamations will, be continue, will continue and many will believe until Jesus will be taken up in glory. How can this happen? When there are million of, million, millions of things going on in the world, and most, if not all, are designed to keep the work of the Lord from being fulfilled. How can it happen that there are a lot of tragedies already that happen 
pandemic and everything. How can it happen that the work of redemption will be fulfilled? Here it is. Because when it is God who is at work, it will be done. He already proved that when he finished the work of creation. So when Jesus said, I started the work and I'll finish it, it is he is indirectly saying, I am the God who finished creation. And I will also be the God who will finish redemption. You see the point? I am God. This is what this creed is saying. Jesus reveals who God is. So we do not need to be amazed as these false gods around us. There are miracles there and we go there so that we can shout, Great is this God, great is that God. No, we do not have to be running around because the secret has been revealed. Who God is has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. What we need to shout is great is the mystery of godliness, namely Christ. What we need to shout is great is the Christ of God. Great is Christ. As I've said, it is truth war. And the world will continue to proclaim their God. They will continue to say, great is their God. But how loud do you shout that no, great is the Christ of God. Everyone should know how he or she ought to behave in the household of God because we hold the great mystery of godliness. Christ revealed God in the work of redemption. And I felt like the way the creed was outlined to us makes us realize that there is a need to see the big picture of redemption. We have to see that. And we have to see what God is doing in our midst. We need to check on Joshua Project and see where the gospel has gone. We need to see how the gospel has penetrated these tribes. Because then you realize that the truth that the scripture has claimed that the gospel will be proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world is indeed true and that God is indeed working. See, our problem, church, is that we have been saved by God so we can be part of the kingdom and as part of the kingdom to work for the kingdom. Our problem is we have forgotten that we are part of a kingdom and we are still continually building our kingdom. Next year, we want to develop the culture of reading books because unless we are helped by these faithful writers, we might miss a lot of beautiful things that are ours in Christ Jesus. And yes, we have to grow in knowing the redemption of God so that we might not take it lightly and fail to intentionally live the way God wants us to live in his household. Thirdly, why should everyone have to know how to behave in the household of God? This is our calling. Christ route godliness. We are called to godliness. A godliness that is born out of Christ. 
So yes, the mystery of godliness is Christ. That's the object of our faith. But it is the mystery of godliness. Do you see the point? This is the mystery of the godliness. In other words, Christ is the root of true godliness. If the root of true godliness is Christ, and not just any requirements from any religion or law, then in Christ should spring out true godliness. Listen to the comment of Philip Towner. He said, again, this is a long quote, but please bear with me. Godliness is more expansive. It includes the faith, but goes a decisive step further to link a certain Christian manner of life to it. Consequently, this phrase, the mystery of godliness, forms a connection between the appearance of Christ and the Christian living. The mystery, which is Christ, is the essence of godliness. So in this, Philip Towner is pointing that the mystery, namely Christ, is where true godliness grows. That's where true godliness grows. And that is why the problem with the people in Ephesus or these false teachers, they have claimed that they're in pursuit of godliness through observance of rituals, through the law. Instead of producing godliness, they actually continue to live in sin. Because true godliness will be born out of knowing Christ. According to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, that Timothy should keep these people from teaching, he said, any doctrine, nor to devote themselves to meats and endless genealogies, which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He called this, this false teaching, he called this irreverent silly meats in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, that has nothing to do with godliness. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 to 10, he said that these teachings does not accord to godliness because it only led to a lot of sins instead of commitment in God. We understand then that unless one understand the gospel of Je- understands the gospel of Jesus Christ, he cannot produce true godliness. The mystery, or if you may, the secret, the secret to godliness is Christ. And up until today, people still miss it, isn't it? A lot of people thought it is about religion, it is about obeying the law, it is about yoga, it is about self-discipline, it is about respecting others, or the more recent one, it's about critical race theory which means you just have to equality, that all races are equal. If we see each other equal, then we can have a good life, a better life, a right life. But the irony of it is that these same people who adhere to all these philosophies live in envy, discontentment, lust, materialism, gossip, and all sorts of sin. It is clear then that these things do not produce true 
godliness. Because Christ alone produces godliness in a sinner's life. In a sinner's life. But what proves our claim? That Christ is the secret of our godliness. Or the secret of, to godliness is not our eloquence. What proves that Christ is the secret to godliness is our own godliness. In Paul's admonition in four, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 to Timothy, we should be an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. Paul also said we should pursue godliness. Because godliness will not stop here on earth, but the life to come. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul said, Godliness should be defined by contentment. As people who are in Christ or who claim to believe in Christ, is godliness our pursuit? Are we pursuing godliness? Why should everyone know how to behave in the household of God? It is because the mystery of godliness, namely Christ, that the church knows will result to godliness. So we cannot be content with professing our faith. We have to be living in godliness. Our life should be centered on God. Godliness according to a Jerry Bridges, differs from righteousness because godliness is a God-centered life. Which basically calls us to ask the question, what is the center of our life today? What is our pursuit? Here's our big idea again. And we're almost closing. Knowing Christ in the redemptive work of God will lead the church to live in true godliness, which is the proper way to live in the presence of God and as the upholder and protector of the truth. I was talking to uh, Brother Wilson and Sister Nida regarding a businesswoman that they are trying to help. She's a successful businesswoman, but she's naive to all deceptions, so she was taking adva taken advantage. In the course of our conversation, we noted that this woman always knows how to make business fly. And then we realized that successful business people have reached a certain knowledge that success is almost a second nature to them. Whereas to most of us, We've been trying to be a businessman, but it's so hard. It's like there's, there's, there's a knowledge that we need to gain so that like these successful business people, we can see profit 20 kilometers away. It's as if they have this, they have understood the secret to being successful in business. When it comes to godliness, we have come to understand 
that it is born out of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because in Scripture, we are told that we are transformed into that same image that we were originally created when we see God. But we only see God in the face of Christ. We only see God in the gospel. Or we only, or we see God the highest in the gospel of Christ. So if you want to grow in godliness, then see who God is in the face of Christ. I think it is right for us to close by reading 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul said, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we should live in true godliness in the household of God because it is the proper way to live in the presence of God as the ones who uphold and protect the gospel and most importantly, being the ones who have known Christ. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.